Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this great opportunity to come together and to worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us to what you would have us to learn through this section of Scripture. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. All right. We're in Psalm. Psalm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he's gone to before the high priest and had the people lie about him. They decided that his crime was that he said he'd destroy the temple and build it back up in three days and, uh, and admitted that he was the Christ. So verse 69 is where we're at. Now Peter sat without the palace, uh, sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him and said, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know him not. I know not what you say. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid said, saw him and said unto him, This fellow also was, was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they, they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then began he to curse and swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which he said unto him, Behold, before the cock crows, you shall deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. All right, so this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus told Peter when Peter very brashly and boldly said, though these will betray, you know, run away from you, I will not leave. And Jesus said, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. And, uh, and we talked about it even then. You know, when Peter said that he was not going to deny Jesus, he truly meant he wasn't going to deny Jesus. I mean, in his mind, he was sure there was no way he was going to deny Jesus and as we've said many times, be careful. If you think there's something that you, will not happen to you, you are in danger of that being exactly the sin you're going to fall into or exactly what you're going to do. I learned what you said. Never say never. <laughs> but, you know, here we see, we saw Peter bold enough against an entire company of soldiers to draw a sword and strike somebody's, well, probably trying to take his head off, but struck his ear off. Uh, and Jesus told him to put it away, and, and then he ran. But he ran, but he still near Jesus. His personal flesh is still kind of holding him in there. But now he's seeing Jesus being fully mistreated. He's watching Jesus being beat. He's watching Jesus having problems with these people, you know, mistreating him. And in his mind, he's saying, this is the Messiah. This isn't supposed to happen to the Messiah. And his courage is starting to wane because he's not listened to Jesus all this time when Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to raise again in three days. And none of that ever clicked in their brain. And we, you know, especially in the last few, few months, we've been covering Jesus in that last week, kept telling him over and over, I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to die, I'm going to resurrect. And it's still never fully engaged in their mind because it didn't make sense to them. They're following the Messiah. The Messiah is going to start a kingdom and he's going to rule from Jerusalem. What is, this, what is this death business he keeps talking about? Uh, he, he must have lost his mind. <laughs> or we've lost our mind, one or the other. Yeah, we're following the Messiah. 
So he's following Jesus, still fully expecting some miraculous deliverance, even though he's been arrested. All right? And so we look at this, and it starts out, and it says, you know, that he's out, he's out of the palace, and in the other Gospels, it tells us he's warming his hand by the fire. And it says a, a damsel, or... Yeah, damsel comes and says to him, you're, you are a, you're one of his followers. Here's big, bold, brash Peter and a young girl. <laughs> yeah, you're one of his followers, aren't you? And he says, I don't even know him. Yeah, I don't know him. And how many times have we been in a place where we may be saying the same thing about Jesus? Somebody comes up to him and says, well, aren't you one of those Christians, you know, or maybe they're using it more uh, specific. Aren't you one of those born-again Christians? <laughs> or uh, you're one of those Bible thumpers, aren't you? you know, oftentimes we might try to deny because we hear the accusation in their voice that they don't like Christians, and we backpedal from Jesus. We might not be as bold as Peter to say, well, I don't know him, but you know, we might, uh, well, I'm not, you know, no, not really, or not, I'm not that bad. <laughs> We need to be very careful that we stand up for God in, certain, in the situations. Then he decides to leave the place where he gets his first accusation, goes out to the porch, and he's again come to and says, aren't you one of his followers? Aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And it says, and he takes an oath. You know, that would be something, by, by the temple, I do not know him, or by, by God, I don't know him. You know, he's what he's, what he's saying when he says an oath. You know, he's making a pledge. You know, I, I swear on a stack of Bibles that I don't know him type of, type of statement that he's making. And then they come up to him and go, well, you are definitely one of his followers because you sound like a Galilean. Now, what a Galilean sounds like, I have no idea. But there was something about his speech that gave away that he was raised in, from that area. Uh, it would be like if you talk to a southerner. If you ever talk to a southerner, they cannot hide the fact that they are from the south. Uh, if you know the other accents, you also know that, you know, if you've ever been around a New Yorker, they have certain words and accents and, and tones that are part of their, their speech. You know, and it's true of all, a lot of places. And basically they're saying, uh, you're from Galilee, this is Jerusalem, you must be one of his followers because otherwise, what are you doing down here? Now, that logic really didn't make much sense because what, what is the big event happening right now? Passover. Passover. And what happens on Passover? All the males are supposed to go to Jerusalem, at least if you're going to be following God and, and claiming to be a good Jew, you were to be in Jerusalem. Now, why, why the Galilean would be at the, the court of the high priest when Jesus is being interrogated in the middle of the night Probably was a good sign that if there's got a Galilean sitting in this court, you know, in the courtyard, he has to be one of his followers, otherwise he wouldn't be here. And then it says that Peter cursed and swore that he didn't know, didn't know him. Okay, his progression gets to just a denial, then he takes an oath that he doesn't know him, and then he gets so angry about it, he curses and swears, I don't know him. And so we see this progression. And usually, if you think about it, isn't that how our sins always go? We start out with a gentle uh, rejection, and then we keep getting stronger and stronger in our rejection. Gary? 
and that and that would be something you know he is a fisherman he is a sailor he is you know of the world even though he's been walking with Jesus for four years he's used to that crowd and it would make sense that all of a sudden he's getting angry and to just let loose with the swear words more more at himself probably but he's probably in the situation Many times we get angry at other people when we're really angry at ourselves, but if you talk to, the, talk to you, you know, you look at yourself, you don't recognize that you're angry more with yourself than the person, and you strike out at them and attack them instead of trying to deal with your own self. Um, but he's also afraid. I mean, he literally is afraid. Jesus has been arrested, looks as he's hearing what's going on, looks like he's going to go to the, be executed, and all these people go, aren't you one of his followers? Aren't you one of his followers? So he's getting a little mad at them, a little mad at himself. You know, probably why should I be here? Why, why, why have I lost my bravery? I should be standing next to him. I was willing to die to, against the soldiers, and here I am, not willing to go to, into the courtroom with him and suffer. We look at this, and oftentimes that's exactly what we do to ourselves. We, we realize... And we might even get mad at ourselves. You know, I, I blew this chance to witness for God again. Yeah, I did this. I didn't do this. I, and oftentimes we get mad at ourselves. And, it can, and when we get mad at ourselves, we'll often strike out at other people because that's just human nature. You know, to blame ourselves is not usually what we want to do unless we're trying to be very honest with ourselves. And in the moment, we're not usually honest with ourselves. We usually will strike out at others. And then as soon as he started cursing, it says, immediately the cock crowed. And Peter remembered what Jesus said. And beyond remembering what Jesus said, probably remembered what he said to Jesus as well. You know, I will never abandon you. And so then we see this whole thing of, oh, he's abandoned him now three times, just as he was said that he would. And so he's, a little angry with himself, a little angry, maybe even with Jesus for having told him that he would do it. You know, because, okay, you, know, you were right, and now I'm mad at you because you were right. And it says that he immediately departed, and he wept. Because here he is, having violated what he said he would do. And we know that he meant it when he said it because of his reaction when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. He was ready to die for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was ready to, one man, I'm ready to fight all these guards that are here in the Garden of Gethsemane to take Jesus away. And then, when there's really no true threat, he backs off from Jesus and denies him. And he, so he's mad at himself, he's mad at, probably mad at Jesus for it, and he's also mad at all the people for giving him all these questions. <laughs> uh, he's just an angry person at this point because he's losing everything that he thinks he's had. He's losing what he's his dream was. His dream was to follow the Messiah and be part of the new kingdom. And he's at the ground floor, so he's expecting, you know, it never says this, but the, the disciples had to have been expecting. We followed the Messiah when he got started, so of course he's going to pick us to be the dukes and the princes and the, you know, whatever, whatever high, high people it is. They were with him from the beginning. They expected to be rewarded. And here he is, his dream is falling apart. His Messiah, the king, is being killed. <laughs> and he knows because he's hung his everything on this that 
he will probably be hunted down later on. Once they get done with Jesus, they're probably going to come after them. So we got to keep in mind, everything about this is a hard time for Peter. You know, his, his dream is coming apart at the seams. Everything he, he thought he was getting out of this was, was going, is going to fall apart because he's the one that said, you are the Christ, the anointed one, which meant he had acknowledged him as Messiah. You're the one that's going to start the kingdom. You're the one that's going to rule from Jerusalem. And Jesus didn't correct him on that. He said, you were right. The, the, the Spirit has given you this revelation. And so all of a sudden, just a short time later, he's seeing his whole dream falling apart. And if you've ever been in a place where your dreams have been taken from you or started falling apart because they're not what God wanted for you, you can really start getting upset about life for a period of time. Because where do you go when you don't have a dream? You have to refocus your dream. And that's why Peter's having to refocus his dream. And he's not ready to refocus his dream yet. He's still in the middle of losing it. All right. Any comments before we go into this next chapter? We'll probably be in this next chapter for a while because there's a lot here and it's a long chapter. Chapter 27, verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, the governor. All right, so here we have, remember, they arrested Jesus around midnight. They have an illegal night trial with the high priest. And we've talked about how it's illegal to have this have a trial at night in, in the Judea, uh, Judean legal system of the day. And they're going to do one more step, is they're going to convict him on the same day as the trial. And they're supposed to have the trial on one day, sleep on their, their thoughts, and make the uh, conviction or acquittal decision the next day after they've had time to consider all the facts. They've done none of this. Morning comes, and they take counsel together. And this word means literally to be talking about how they're going to do this. It has the idea of something like our Supreme Court justices getting together after they've heard a case and discussing what they each think about it and coming to a decision about it. And this is what what they came together. They came together to take counsel amongst themselves. Except in this case, it was against Jesus to put him to death. It wasn't, it wasn't about, is he guilty or not guilty? It's, okay, how do we put him to death? Because the Jews could not legally execute any criminal because they were under Roman law. All right? Rome would not let them just grab somebody and stone them. They, they did it sometimes, but they would run, a, run against the Roman Empire if they did that. And usually it happened, it wasn't a case where it went to the, the, to the high priest or the Sanhedrin. It was just they violated the law. The people quickly took them and stoned them before the Roman, Romans could go in and stop what was happening. Uh, so they're sitting there, okay, how, do we, how are we going to kill him? You know, he deserves to be stoned. He, he's committed blasphemy as far as they're concerned. He deserves to be stoned, but they know that too many people, number one, like him. They take him out to the place to stone him, and there's going to be a riot because they don't control everybody. There's, Jesus has got a great big following, and they're afraid that that following will rise up and rescue Jesus. They, they don't have the power to put him on a cross, 
So somehow, they, if they're going to if they're going to get him crucified, they have to get him to Pilate to be. Right, and Pilate is in trouble, and Pilate is a politician. Politicians have not changed since the beginning of time. All right, Pilate is, as we're going to see as we get into this, he thinks Jesus is innocent, or at least has not done anything worthy of Roman execution. Now, okay, he claims to be a god, big deal. We've got, gods all, we've got demigods all over the place. Who cares if he claims, claims to be God as far as Pilate's concerned? That's not a death crime as far as he is caring about. Uh, he knows that these guys are just losing their influence and power, so he knows they're, that they're acting out of jealousy and envy. They have an agenda. They have an agenda. He knows it. Now, so we say, well, okay, well, why didn't he just forgive him and, and let him go? Well, because he was under the gun because he had had several riots in Jerusalem. And his last riot the Roman guard had to kill a number of people to put down the riot. And Caesar came back to him and says, one more riot, and you're not going to be governor of Judea anymore. Or Palestine, or whatever they called that area. You're not going to be the governor anymore. So he is in, a, he's in the rock and the hard place as a politician. He wants to do what's right, but knows that if he does what's right, somebody is going to get upset. All right. He's going to have the part that liked Jesus being all happy, but he's going to have the leaders of the people or the leaders of the religious system upset with him and probably causing trouble. And he's in a position where no matter what you do, you're wrong. And that's where politicians really have a problem is when no matter what they do, somebody's going to be mad at them because they don't like to have people mad at them. And that has not changed. It's the same today. It was the same for Pilate. And if you go back through the kings, it was the same for the kings. If you're a politician and not a statesman, you don't do what's right. You do what keeps you in power. And this is where Pilate is going to be in this whole situation. And they're figuring out, okay, what charge can we make to Pilate that he will accept that it's worthy of death? And that's what they're discussing. Because, and like I say, if they brought the charge, well, he says he's a king, he says he's God, Pilate's going to say, so what? <laughs> the, the Caesar says he's God, you know, this person says they're God, this person says they're God, all these people say they're God, I don't care that he says he's God, that's not a big deal. And that's their big charge on him, that he's, that he's committed blasphemy. And it doesn't mean anything to Pilate. So they have to go, okay, how can we get Pilate to put him to death? And then they bound him and they took him to Pontius Pilate. Now remember, this is the day before Passover. They have to be careful how they even interact with Pilate because if they interact incorrectly, they will be unclean for Passover and not be able to participate in Passover. And these are the religious leaders. They can't allow themselves to get unclean. They cannot go into, and you'll, you'll see not so much in this one, but in the other Gospels, it talks about how Pilate went out to them, left his, his uh, property and went outside to talk to them because they wouldn't come inside because to step inside would have made them ceremonially unclean for a minimum of till sunset. And this is Passover. They, want to be, they don't want to be unclean for Passover. So this is a big deal. They're going to go, we've got to get to Pilate. 
And remember, what was the very first thing we read a couple months ago now? It's just a couple chapters ago. They did not want to arrest Jesus on Passover. Too many strangers in town, too many people they couldn't control. It's a big event. Everybody's coming there. There's people who love him from the north coming. There's, there's people that have just heard the rumors of this great leader you know, out there. But Jesus and God are in control of everything that's been happening. Judas goes to betray him right before Passover. Jesus tells Judas, go and do what you have to do. All the way through, Jesus is basically running the show. He knows where he's supposed to go, what's supposed to happen. And between him and the Father... It's going to happen. He is going to die as the Passover lamb. And everything about this is orchestrated by a God to, and Jesus to happen. So they bring, him to, they bring him to Pilate. All right, verse 3. We have a little vignette here that doesn't belong to, to the rest of the story. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See that see the you to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hung himself. And the chief priest took the pieces, silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for us to put this into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and, and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that is valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and they gave them for a potter's field as the Lord appointed me. All right, so here we have a little picture of Judas. And it says that Judas, after he betrayed them, he repented. And this word for repentant does not necessarily mean a change of lifestyle. It is an emotional response. All of a sudden, he is hit emotionally that I've just, I've just betrayed this man, and they're going to kill him. And I don't know if he never understood it or if this is when it became real to him. I don't believe when he sold Jesus, he didn't understand that they wanted to kill him. I think, though, this is when it finally hit home. Have you ever had that moment when something, a piece of news has hit home? And maybe hours or days after, afterwards, it might be the death of a family member. That all of a sudden, you know, you feel that sadness when you first hear it, but it really, the reality of it, it doesn't hit until sometimes days later for some people. When all of a sudden, they're not there for the special event that normally would have been there. Your first day back from work and nobody's home. Uh, dinner's not there, whatever it might be. Quite likely. Like He's greedy. Yeah, greedy. You know, John tells us that he held the money bag and, and basically took from the money bag. So he's a greedy man. He's been willing to steal from his own friends. Uh, might have been a little low on the, on the funds and he needed some funds. And he said, okay, they'll, they'll, pay, to, they'll pay for Jesus. I'll, I'll take this money. And then the reality of what it cost hit him later on. And, but he still wasn't, again, I bring up this word, does not mean that he had a real 
change of repentance. It just means that he had the emotional, uh, oh, wow, this is, this is more than I bargained for. And like you said, I need the money. How many people will do just about anything when they need money? Uh, if you're a drug, you know, a druggie and you need your, your fix, you'll, you'll sell anything, steal anything, do anything to get the money to get the fix. Point out Jesus. Yeah. Point out Jesus. You know, so uh, it was pretty easy money for him. We don't want to be too hard on him because any of us, if we were in a big enough, probably would do the same thing. Now, he, this was a pretty big deal to, ter- to betray Jesus. How come they were not familiar with him? How come they needed somebody to point him out? It could be, and this is what I. Pr- proposed when we first talked about this, it could be that they were sending soldiers to arrest him and not themselves, because they've talked to him all the time. They've tried to trip him up, and, and they've gone there, and it sounds like they sent soldiers who may or may not have known him. Uh, and that's the only reason I can possibly think that he had to be pointed out. But the leaders knew who he was, because they've been talking about him. My only thought on this has been that They've sent a company of soldiers who may, may or may not have known who he was. And they don't want to stand there and go get him. Yeah. yeah and, they're not gonna, and they're not going to, they're trying to distance him, themselves from the arrest. Because if they go, if the priests and the elders go and say, arrest that man, then the people are going to riot. But, yeah, and this is going to be the problem. And it's very much the same as today. The judge, even if he had, you know, isn't going to send his bailiff out to go arrest the guy out there, they send the sheriff out and arrest. It gives you the separation of powers, and I'm sure that they didn't want to be seen as we're the one that we're the ones that arrested him, and then we're the ones that convicted him. And by the way, we're going to be the ones that execute him. So I think I think in their mind they're trying to separate. Okay, we have another group. We have this group of soldiers that are going to arrest him. We'll judge him, and then we're sending him to Pilate. So we have our our breakdown. Okay, and I think that could be a big part of why they sent people who didn't know who Jesus was exactly. And in that case, positive ID, you know, you need somebody, when we're sending soldiers up there, they may or may not know who he is, but we're going to make sure they arrest the right, they arrest the right guy. That's the only thing I can think of as far as needing Judas to betray him. And Judas says, you know, I have sinned and I betrayed innocent blood. And this is what he's saying to the religious leaders. I have sinned. Now, if they were good leaders, this should have caused them to have a heart for him that says, oh, yeah, you you have. But what is their answer? What is that to us? What is it to us that you sinned? We're just the ones that offer the sacrifices when you you bring the sacrifice in for your forgiveness, but what is it to us that you sinned? They couldn't, and that's, that, that's a very sharp answer they give him. You, number one, he could have gone, well, you enticed me with this offer. You paid me to turn him in, and they're going, so what? So what? What is, it, what is it to us that you've sinned? And you think about this. How often do people get led into sin, and the one that leads them into sin doesn't care? Maybe even rejoices that they led them into sin. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, you, you thought you were so holy and, and good. You know, you know, I, you're, you're no better than the rest of us. And they rejoice in, in the fact that we as a Christian fall. Yeah, 
You should have known better. You should have, you should have seen right through that. You, you walked into it with your eyes open. Uh, and technically we do, even though we like to say we fall into sin. You know, we know what we're doing when we sin. The Holy Spirit is not silent when we sin. And uh, you know, their answer is, so what? You know, we, we're the one that paid you. We're the one that uh, enticed you to do this. But so what? You're, you're guilty. It says that he cast down the 30 pieces of silver and he went and hung himself. His repentance should have led him into saying, God, forgive me. But his repentance just led him to kill himself. Is it possible that Judas Iscariot is in heaven? Anything's possible because it's grace. I don't believe so. Because he's still, all through this, we're not seeing a true repentance that leads to asking for forgiveness. We just see, I'm sorry I got caught type attitude and then you won't forgive me, so I'm going to go hang myself. Uh, I can't say that he's not going to be there. He spent four years with Jesus, but they, you know, Jesus himself called him a devil. So I don't know that he was ever a true follower of Christ. Right. He followed yeah. Jesus around yeah. for four years. Yeah. He followed Jesus around for four years. I, and, you know. I was just well, that doesn't necessarily mean they would, but it is an indication that he wasn't a Christian stealing from his own friends. It's not. He didn't have the right heart. He didn't, definitely didn't have the right heart. He didn't have the right attitude. But, you know, he was also used by Jesus. He was one of the 12 that were sent out two by two to share the gospel. And, and this, is, this is one of the things that tells us we can serve God and not be one of his children. And seen it so many times where somebody will get saved in their 60s, 70s, 80s. They've been at church all their life, and all of a sudden they realize, you know, this God that everybody around me has been talking about for the last 80 years, I don't know. And then they will come and commit, commit themselves to God, if they're lucky. Do you think um, that Jesus was, uh, was given him um, uh, an opportunity to change his lifestyle? Definitely, that would have been one thing. He had plenty of opportunities. Jesus told, the, Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tear, and he says, God will say, let the wheat and the tares grow together until harvest, and then we will separate them. Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these wonderful you know, list of things? And he goes, depart from me, I've never, I never knew you. So, yes, part of it is, we hear the gospel often enough that we should be able, we're definitely without... Uh, excuse. Others is that he's given them enough rope to hang themselves. You know, it's like I've given you more than enough cha- chances. You you are without excuse. If, if when he said I, I repent, regretted it, if he had truly repented, he would have been looking for forgiveness. Yeah. He would have been looking for forgiveness, and that's why I say this particular word for repent. There's two words in the Greek for repent. One means to change your moral attitude your moral lifestyle, and the other is to have an emotional reaction. This one is, he's having an emotional reaction. Was Cain forgiven? There's nothing in the scriptures that talks about Cain having been forgiven. Now, could he have been forgiven? Absolutely, because it's God's grace that forgives, and you always have the consequence for sin. Uh, I do not believe that Cain probably turned back to God because his, he was angry at God for this. He was trying to justify his, you know, his exile and say, you know, everybody that sees me is going to want to kill me. 
and God gave him a very generous thing. He marked him so that it says nobody's going to touch you. And every one of Cain's descendants listed in the scripture were evil. I do not believe that he did. That doesn't mean... <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where the Bible is silent in, and, and I've said this before, we need to be very careful. If the Bible is silent on a topic, we have to be careful not to try to read too much into silence. You cannot make it... Because if you want to say any place the Bible is silent about a topic, you can make it say anything you want it to say. Because <laughs> the Bible is silent on a lot of topics. So be very careful about that. Um, and, you know, when, I, when I'll tell you this is what I think, you know, this, I'll, I'll usually phrase this, you know, uh, the other day we were talking uh, about the conversation between Solomon and his wife that, and I go, and this is what I can, can picture being said, all right, so that you know that this is my opinion and it makes sense and it's probably what did happen, but I don't want anybody to say, well, pastor said that this is what happened, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that could have happened. You know, could he have repented? Absolutely, he could have repented and been forgiven. No, son of Seth. Uh, the, the only, the third of the named children of Adam and Eve. Yes, he was the, the righteous lion is traced through Seth. The unrighteous lion is trained, traced through Cain. And then Seth. And a whole bunch of unnamed kids. Never forget the whole bunch of unnamed kids. Because uh, the, the, the biggest question people love to ask Christians to say, you know, to really stump them up, where did Cain get his wife? Well, it says that Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters. He married a sister or a cousin or however far back down the line it goes. We, are, we only have the names of three of Adam and Eve's kids, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Were those the first three? Not necessarily. Say in what order they were born. Doesn't, we know that Cain was older than, than Abel and Seth came afterwards. But we do not know that Cain was the original, was the original child because Eve's comment was, I have been given a man-child. And it doesn't say specifically that she had had daughters before. But, but it, it kind of indicates, okay, I've had a couple of daughters, now finally I get this man that I was told was coming. And Cain wasn't the one that we was told was coming. Okay. Now, can you make a hard stance that, you know, that there were some daughters older than Cain? No. But that one statement kind of leaves it very open. And it could just be the first one. Oh, I finally got my child. You know, it, you know, it, it is totally unclear whether he was the eldest or the eldest boy uh, in the story. He betrayed him, threw, the, threw it down, and hung himself. And he had, look at the chief priest's answer. The chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for us to put this in the treasury. Where did they get the money to pay him from in the first place? Yeah, out of the treasury. They would have pulled the money from the treasury, given it to him to betray Jesus, but when it comes back to them, they go, we can't put this in the treasury. It's blood money. We, 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 we made it bad money because we gave it to him to, for, the, for this innocent man's life. And, and it's just kind of an interesting thing when you think about it. Mm -hmm. now, we're willing to pay you, but we can't take that money back. We're willing to give you this money. We're going to change it into blood money, but we, but we will not take it back because it is... Double you know, Now it's ba really bad Double money. Yeah, yeah we're, we're so righteous, we can't take this money. But it's only blood money if they hadn't paid a reward for a guilty person anyway. Which basically what they're saying is it's blood money he was innocent, and we're, we bought his blood. 
instead of we paid the ransom, you know, we paid the reward for arresting an evil person. So even by their own admission here, they're admitting in this statement, yeah, these guys are really strange. And most people who are self-righteous have these same types of problems. On one side, it's okay. But on the other side, they know that it's not okay. And they struggle. People who are self-righteous struggle with many things that they do or don't do because they know they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And they struggle with that. Now, they don't usually let people know. And if you've ever been in a place where you've been self-righteous, you know exactly what I'm saying. Because on one side, you're going, I really shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. Uh, because I want to look good, or I want this, that, or the other thing. And yet, you know you're doing it for the wrong reason, and it's hard to, hard to justify the two. It's very hard to try to justify living in the flesh and living as, as, as a spirit-led person. You can't bring the two together. And the self-righteous person will try to make it look like they're being obedient to the word. Or even worse, they'll dig up Bible verses to justify what they're doing. And they'll use all kinds of verses to say, well, see, this, this verse I took out of context says this, and therefore I am right. When Satan tempted Jesus, he quoted Psalm 92 on the third one. If you cast down your, yourself from this pinnacle, the angels will protect you. Satan is good at quoting verses. The self-righteous person is good at quoting verses. They will give you verses all day long as to what they're doing and why it's right. If you look them up in context, they usually have nothing to do with what they're saying and don't justify what they're saying. The, the number one verse that the world knows nowadays from the Bible. Judge, judge not. <laughs> yep. So, uh, Matthew 7, judge not. They forget the second half of the verse, lest you be judged. By what, matter you, what, by what measure you judge, you shall be judged, which means if we're going to judge, we better make sure it's the right judgment and it's God's word. And if we're judging by God's word and we're willing to be judged by God's word, and we should be as Christians, the, the judge not is not a command not to judge. It is a command how to judge. I am to judge according to God's word and hold true his word. And our world does not want to be held accountable to God's word. They'll just say, you're judging me. And the sad thing is, so many Christians will say the same thing. You're judging me. I want to be judged by the word of God. Because it is going to clean up my life if I let it, let it judge me. It'll keep me from a lot of consequences of bad behavior. If I look at his word and say, God, I want to know how you truly want me to behave. Because, say it over and over again, because it's so true. Sin has consequences. Whether you know about the sin or not, it still has consequences. The, the statement that we hear all the time is, ignorance of the law is no defense. It's no defense for God either. If you violate his rules, whether you know that you're violating his rules or not, there are consequences for the violating of God's law. And I want him to show me his law so that I will know the way he wants me to live so that I can ask him to crucify my flesh so that I could live in the way he wants me to live. Because it is critical for us to be able to turn our life over to God. And this is what we're looking at. God wants us not to be self-righteous. 
He doesn't want me to follow his rules so I can say, look at me, look how good I am. Like a Pharisee. Yeah, like a Pharisee. Uh, he wants us to be able to say, God, I just want to love you so much that I want to do what it is you want me to do. I don't care if anybody sees it or doesn't see it. And that's when we're at the right place. Now, if you're living God's way, people are going to see it, people are going to notice. But you're not to be out there like the Pharisees, blowing your trumpets and say, hey, look at me. You know, I'm fasting. See how, see how drawn and, and haggard my face is? Look at me. I'm praying. You know, okay, everybody, everybody over here, look at me. Uh, you know, look at me giving my offering. God is not wanting any of that. Now, that doesn't mean people are never going to know that you're fasting, never going to know that you're giving your offerings. But your purpose is not to go, hey, you know, hey, everybody, look. <laughs> I, I pray a lot in front of people <laughs> because I pray before, this, before the studies, at the end of studies, and with people. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you're, try, as long as you're not saying, hey, look at me, I, I'm praying. And Pharisees do this all the time. These high priests did that all the time. They, they weren't worshiping God. They were, hey, look at us. Look at how good we are. You know, we're so good, we're not taking this money. He, he sold Jesus for it. When we gave it, we really didn't know what he was going to do with it, even though we told him to kiss, 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 the, kiss it, give a kiss to him and tell us who he is. But we really didn't know what he was going to do with it, so it wasn't blood money until he gave it back to us. And that was really dirty money. Uh, that's their self-righteousness coming out. And, uh, and as, even though it says that Judas hung himself, Matthew really should have said he tried to hang himself because if you remember, the other gospel writer says that when he hung himself, the rope broke and he fell over the precipice and, and actually died a very cruel death, actually falling down into the down off the off the rope. Gospel. And while we're on that topic, that doesn't mean that uh, Matthew is wrong, because J- uh, you know, Judas did try to hang himself. He did. He said he hung himself. He did hang himself. Yeah, he hung himself. He just didn't stay there long. Yeah. And. And just left out part of the story because he didn't, he didn't finish the story. And this, and you know, it's really good. People will make a big deal. Well, they, you know, they, they contradict themselves. Well, they don't truly contradict themselves. But if they had all said exactly the same thing in all four Gospels, what would be the, what would be the accusation? Collusion! Yeah. They got together and decided what they were going to write. The idea that they didn't write exactly the same words really proves that it's an eyewitness testimony where they saw certain things. Only thing Peter, only thing, yeah, that Matthew remembered from his story was, hey, Jesus went out and hung himself. You know, forgot about the part where he falls off the rope and dashes himself to bits on the rocks underneath it. And it could be theoretically possible he hung there long enough to die, die by hanging and then die then fell to the rocks. Because <laughs> the other one doesn't say that he didn't successfully hang himself. It just says the rope broke and he, <laughs> well, and he hit the bottom. Yeah. So he could have been dead after the rope broke, you know, so, or before, before the rope broke. So yeah, again, we don't know. <laughs> we want to just be careful when we look at this. But you know, when people give you this accusation, well, 
Well, one story said he healed 10 lepers, the other one said he only healed one. Well, if you read the story about the 10 lepers, only one returned to, to thank him. The other guy just remembered the one that came back and thanked him. They just remembered the number one. Yeah, you know, the, the one guy came back, who he healed. So we want to be careful, but we also would do the same thing. If all of us in this room saw the same exact event, and we were interviewed by the police or, or detective about what we saw, it would all have different variations to, to the story. And you know, there's all kinds of experiments where this happens. You know, there's a professor one time had somebody come in and pretend to rob him, and everybody wrote down their things, and he, and he robbed him with a banana, and everybody was talking about how big the gun was and what kind of gun it was, and they swore that it was a gun you know, and that he used to, to rob, the, you know, rob the professor in front of the class. We all have perceptions, and when we give our part of the story, we, we believe that it's true. And we might even believe we've told the whole truth, at least to our understanding. And here we see them not being willing to take this money, but they did something good with it. They bought a, bought a burial plot, a burial field for the poor. Well, strangers, poor, people who couldn't afford to be buried. They laundered the money. They, they laundered the blood money to buy something they take this blood money and they do something that they could say is good. <laughs> but in the process, they fulfilled the scriptures. In Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, it tells us exactly what happens, that they took 30 pieces of silver that was to, to betray Jesus, and, or I didn't say Jesus, but betray, the, betray him, and they bought a, field, a field, uh, potter's field for the poor. Now, they quote in here, or Matthew quotes, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for a potter's field as the Lord appointed to me. The only problem with this statement is, in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations, we do not see this statement. This does not mean that Jeremiah didn't say it. <laughs> All right? Uh, there's a lot of oral traditions that the Jews have that they place on equal footing to the scriptures. Matter of fact, some of the oral stories are more valuable to them than, than what the scriptures say in oftentimes. So this is an oral tradition that he said it. It could be a different book of Jeremiah that wasn't scripture. Uh, Jude is going to reference the book of Enoch in, when he talks about uh, the fall of the angels and everything. And the book, and just as a point of reference, the book that they call the book of Enoch that we have in access today is not the book of Enoch that Jude refers to. The book of Enoch that we have today was written in 400 AD, long after Jesus, long after Jude wrote that, wrote that information. Is there any one book that you've ever read that uh, goes through all these uh, letters and things that weren't put in the Bible? I have never read just one book on all of this. It's more than more of the different apologetics that I've. I'm sure there is. Um, and having while we're on that, we got a couple of minutes, and I want to go to the next section. So we'll talk about these things. When the big news in this day is that there are a lot of books that have biblical named people that were supposedly not included in the Bible. The biggest problem with all of these books, number one, is that they're Gnostic. 
Okay, they believe that the spirit is good, the flesh is bad, and Jesus, therefore, was not the Son of God because the Son of God could never be flesh, and there's a huge problem with that. Okay, so they're from a Gnostic point of view, and they were written in 300, 400, 500 A.D., long after the Bible had been, been canonized. All right? Um, the way they canonized the Bible, number one, was they looked at what was quoted by the early church fathers. Okay? If Polycarp and Justin and those people did not quote from a book, it was not considered scripture. And their quoting it didn't just automatically make it scripture, but it was the first, one of the first things they looked at. If it wasn't, if it wasn't quoted by the first century church leaders, then either it wasn't in existence at that time or they did not recognize it as a uh, inspired book. We know from Paul's, uh, Paul's writing that he wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians. We only have two in the Bible. All right? So only two of them were inspired. Two of them were just pastoral letters to his, to his church in Corinth. All right? Not everything Paul wrote was inspired. Not everything Peter wrote was inspired. So there are there letters that they probably wrote that, that could be found? Absolutely. Well, I'd be interested in those ones that were written before Jesus' time by Jeremiah. Uh-huh. You know, early, early on and not before five. Yeah. After. And those are the ones that are hard to find because you, go in, you have to go into the Jewish uh, apocrypha. And the, the, okay. the, the Jewish people have stories behind every, they have backstories for every story in the Bible. And they're, they're fun to read. They're, kind of, they're, fun, they're fun to read sometimes. But you have to realize, I'm reading something that is not inspired yeah. and keep that in mind. It, it's an opinion of somebody and it may or may not be true. Uh, the Bible refers to many books that we don't, we don't know. The book, of the, the book of the Battles of the Kings is one of them. We don't know what that book, nobody's ever found it. Oh, it just wasn't scripture. It just wasn't considered inspired in scripture. They would find something that was not true in it or uh, something that was an opinion that, that doesn't match up to the rest of the Bible. Uh, if you've read the apocryphal books that the, that the Catholics have in them, they're really wonderful books. They're, they're, they're fun books to read as long as you remember they're not inspired and some of them are just blatantly against what it says in the Bible, even though they're good stories. The Book of Thomas is another book that was written in the, around 500 A.D. Yes. What they would do is they would write these books really late, stick a disciple's name on it, you know, the epistle according to Mary, the epistle according to Thomas, the epistle according to this person, that person, and five centuries later, five century, four or five centuries later, they would stick somebody else's name on it and say, here's an old book that I just came up with, you know, I just dug up, and... They're going, well, it's never been quoted by any church father, and it's opposite of what the Bible says, so no, it's not inspired. And there's lots of different places. The book of Hebrews almost didn't make it into the scripture because they're not, even to this day, we don't know who wrote it. And they wanted to make sure they knew who the author was of a book, to prove that it was valid, but Hebrews had been quoted by enough people that go, okay, well, 
they recognized it even though we don't know who the author is, and so they included it. Uh, the book of Esther almost didn't make it into the Bible, and the reason it didn't almost didn't make it into the Bible is because it doesn't mention the name of God anywhere in it. Even though God's hand is all over it, it's, it, they almost didn't include it in the Bible because it didn't use the word God, and that was a Hebrew decision. The, the Old Testament was pretty easy. Whatever the Hebrew people were using, they said, okay, we recognize those as scripture. And the New Testament, in 300 AD, when they sat down to, put, to officially canonize the Bible, it had really been canonized long before that by what people were using, but they put their official stamp on it, and they had a whole number of things they were looking for. Do we know who the author is? Does it, does it stay consistent? Uh, was it quoted by the early, the early church fathers? And if it passed all these tests, they said, okay, this is a book that belongs in the is Holy Scripture. And a lot of weight was put on Polycarp and Justine and Augustine and all these guys from the early, early church. You know, okay, they're close enough. You know, Polycarp was really close. If Polycarp quoted it, he probably knew who wrote it because he was the disciple of John. All right? So he's about as close as you can get without actually knowing Jesus. So if he quoted something, they're going, okay, you know, he's a very strong evidence that it is inspired and accepted. And same thing with all those first century, you know, there are only one or two generations separated from Jesus. If they quoted it, they had been pretty much trained by the apostles or their first generation away from them. And so that's the biggest thing they used to to choose what was in the Bible. So don't ever believe in this thing that the Bible is a man-made group of books that they chose to keep it, you know, keep their co coherence together. Because number one, that is not even a valid argument because as I've said, you know, if you read two books on the same subject written by two different people or even three people, you're gonna have all kinds of errors and contradictions all over those books. Worse yet, you can read the same professor or doctor who's written three or four books over the years and, and he'll contradict or he or she will contradict themselves all over the place. The fact that the Bible does not have contradictions is a miracle of God. All right? A miracle of God. Yep. Forty different authors over three continents over fifteen hundred years to come up to write the the word of God. For the sixty-six books that we accept is, and even if that even if man somehow managed to pick it up, they still would never become a coherent story with no contradictions, because it is just theoretically impossible. And as I said, I don't care if you read the same author on a topic. You're going to find places where they contradict themselves. And especially if you start adding four or five authors involved, even on the same topic. And you think about all the different jobs that these writers had. Some of them were priests. Some of them weren't priests. Some of them were businessmen like uh, Peter who's a, and John. They were, they were businessmen. You've got a farmer, a, a shepherd, you know, uh, a physician. You've got all kinds of different positions and, and thoughts. To get them to agree on anything would be miraculous, and it is a miracle because it's God-breathed. So how, how many years after Jesus died did they put the New Testament and put the Bible together? 
Well, officially it was put together in the 300s. But in that first century, the books that were being accepted were already very well established. Okay, so never buy into this, the, the lie that you'll hear people, well, the Bible didn't get put together until three, 400 years after Jesus. Well, yeah, that's when it officially got put together. They said, these are the books. You know, there was some controversy. As people were getting further and further away from doctrinal truth, they said, okay, we need to bring this together and say, these are the books. But they were already teaching from those books forever. They're the books that the founding fathers quoted and referenced. So when it was time to put them together, they had the starting place. These are the books we've been using. Let's now prove that they've been quoted by the first century. They've been, you know, they, they have the right message. They've, and, all, and we know who wrote them and those type of things. So yes, the Bible wasn't canonized until 300-400 AD, but they knew the books that belonged in it, at least the, the true church, you know, not the apostates, but the true church knew what books belonged in the scriptures and had been using them for the three, 400 years before they finally officially recognized. So they didn't sit down for They already took, they already had the copies of the books that they had, and they already knew which books were the ones that should be there. And so it wasn't, it wasn't we're just going to pull books out of the, you know, uh, from wherever and say, these are the Bible. The uh, long tradition, even at that point, long tradition that had the, the books already lined up and, and understood. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have just to talk and, and look at how you work things together and how you fulfill your, your word no matter what and that you went to the cross voluntarily and orchestrated the whole routine on that, Lord. And also, Lord, that you are the one that put together the word and inspired men to look into the true ways to follow you. And we just thank you. Give us guidance as we go about our business for the rest of this week. In your son's name, amen.